Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is between Michael Burge and 2SER's own Felix Shannon. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, unceded lands where treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Michael Burge is an Australian author and journalist. His non-fiction debut, Questionable Deeds, Making a Stand for Equal Love, lifted the lid on familial and institutional homophobia in Australia during the marriage equality campaign, and Tankwater is Michael's first novel. Now, as I mentioned at the top, today is a special episode. Felix Shannon from 2SER's Death of the Reader has done this interview, and it is absolutely fantastic. It is so nice to take a step back from the microphone and listen to another amazing interviewer do all the hard work. <laughs> Let me tell you about Tankwater. James Brandt didn't look back when he got away from his rural hometown as a teenager. Now he's returned to Kippen for the first time in 20 years because his cousin Tony has been found dead under the local bridge. The news that Tony has left him the entire family farm triggers James's journalistic curiosity and his anxiety both of which are crop- have cropped up during his turbulent journey to adulthood. But it's the unexpected homophobic attack he survives that draws James further into a hunt for the reasons one lonely Kippen farm boy in every generation kills himself. Standing in the way is James's father, the town's recently retired top cop, who's not prepared to investigate crimes no one reckons have taken place. James must use every, use- James must use every news hound's trick he has ever learned in order to uncover the brutal truth. Join me! And join Felix Shannon as we discover Michael Burge's Tankwater. Michael Burge is an Australian journalist, author and artist who lives at Deepwater on Negarabal country in the New England region of New South Wales. And Michael joins us on the show today with his debut crime novel, Tankwater. And we're also going to touch a bit on his nonfiction memoir, Questionable Deeds. Michael, welcome to Final Draft. It's so good to have you. Thanks, Felix. Wonderful to be on. It, it is a little bit suspicious of me to have you on as my first guest on Final Draft. I'm well known around uh, the book spheres here at 2SER, but it's the first time that Andrew Popel has ever been brave enough to hand me the reins and say, this is yours, go for it. Well, I'm very, very honoured that I'm your first guest. I think that's marvellous. And uh, <laughs> what career advancement, it's always fantastic. Good on you. Thank you. So in Tankwater, journalist and outback escapee James Brandt returns to his hometown of Kippen in rural New South Wales for the funeral of his older cousin, Tony. Tony's body was left abandoned for weeks after he died, and his will plants the entire family estate on James's shoulders. Memories from Tony's wedding 20 years ago rhyme with the preparations for his funeral, and James is the only one who seems to be hearing the patterns. Join us as we discuss Michael Burge's Tankwater. First of all, Michael, I wanted to ask for us city slickers, what is tank water? <laughs> well, it, tank water is, you have to catch it. You have to be very artful, um, usually on your roof or in my case where I live now in the uh, northern New England region on Nagarable country. Uh, we catch it on our shed roof and also every sort of square inch of corrugated iron that we have on top of buildings on our property goes into the gutter and uh, runs down into a big, big tank 
And uh, it's been happening that way on fr- in frontier communities across the world for a very, very long time. But now it's considered to be part of off-grid living. It's actually really old technology, catching water. And, uh, it, of course, you have to store it in something. And, and in Australia, we have this great tradition, as you probably know, of the corrugated iron tank. And, uh, but they're not, not so common these days. Um, we've got some very big recyclable uh, plastic tanks. Um, I don't know how long they're going to last. I guess you'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. I often think, gosh, there's so much water there. What happens if a little crack develops? Because water is so powerful in, it, in its way. But, um, yes, tank water is what you grow up on when you're a country kid. And uh, there are many, many myths about tank water. Um, one of the, the most common ones which may well be true, but they say if you grow up in tank water, you can pretty much drink water anywhere in the world because you're drinking lots of stuff that isn't originally water, like, you know, mouse bodies and feathers and birds and frogs and dead possums and, you know, all sorts of stuff goes into the tank. And you hope that it doesn't, but invariably it does. And um, I think they need cleaning out fairly often. Well, who I don't know. Well, we'll yeah, see. I mean... <laughs> Cleaning out is kind of what James Brandt does in this novel, come back to a hometown that, he does. Uh, as his therapist kind of says, hasn't changed enough to where it'll feel different. He has to focus on how it is now rather than how he remembers it. That's correct. Yes. Uh, the thing I wanted to touch on there is how that connects with the title and his journey of seeing what was in the water the entire time. Well, yes, I guess if you were to compare the qualities of water between properties, you'd find all sorts of stuff <laughs> lurking in the bottom of your water tank. And and yes, it can get quite murky. And you're right, James turns up really at the, the threshold of his his youth uh, long, long after it is, it, it is gone. He's in his mid-30s. I think in some ways I was conscious of this as I wrote it. He really turns up at the threshold of his closet it's kind of he's kind of expected to return into it when he comes back to the country because he may well be out in his life in the city, but back at home in the country, he's certainly not out. And a long way from being proud about it, most of his relatives don't know. The ones that do only hint at it, like his cousin Yvonne. And um, yeah, he's got a lot of baggage to sort of sift through. Uh, it's no wonder that he he left because uh, there was probably too much to carry with him. But here we have him returning, and uh, yeah, the I guess um, <laughs> yeah, I think the, the 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 motif of water, particularly this tank water, this this question about its quality is a, is a good one to ask. They say if you you know if you've been on tank water as a kid, as I said, you can drink just about anything. But it's a bitter cup for James <laughs> returning. Back to Kippen. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about his going back into the closet is that you mentioned, uh, I think, at Terra Australis Festival when we first spoke about how coming out was what kind of pushed you into journalism and a search for the truth. And I really liked how at various tipping points, moments of regret or epiphanies through the story, uh, James kind of marks them by trying to get a snazzy headline for them. Is that a healthy habit for him? That's a really, really interesting question. Look, the headlines that that James thinks up in his anxious state are kind of like a, a shorthand way to get to grips with how he feels and also for the reader. And uh, hopefully, I mean, I'm a former sub-editor myself. Actually, I still on occasion do work as a sub-editor and I know the old maxim about subheadings, uh, sorry, really, really great um, headlines 
and subheadings is that they're pretty much dad jokes and puns. And um, the more alliterative, the best. And I often think of the old Fleet Street editors who who really made all the benchmarks for that. But I really hope that what readers see in the in James's anxious inner musings with his headlines is someone in a really dreadful state of anxiety because the headlines aren't that great, the ones that he makes up, but they really give us a glimpse as to where he's at. There's often jokes around sub-editorial desks, of which there are very, very few left now in the media, um, about how we come up with what we come up with. And, um, you know, you often come up with a cracker and most often come up with something which is absolutely dreadful. But that's the way James's mind works. He's a journalist. We have some crossover. I'm a journalist too. So I, I thought to myself, I loved the way that in the movie adaptation of The Shipping News, that film uh, based on the Annie Prue prize-winning book, fantastic prize-winning book, they, in the film adaptation, they actually had Coyle, the main character, thinking in headlines. So I didn't consciously emulate that. I actually realised that after I had written the manuscript of Tank Water, I watched the film again, which I love, and I thought, ah, there we go. It's, it's, it's a way that journalists think, this shorthand as to what's happening, what's the subject of this particular moment that they're, in, they're confronting. For James, whenever you see one of his headlines, you, you're going to know right off the bat that he's not feeling great about himself and he doesn't particularly know how to chart his way through uh, those moments. And I often get asked, what writing a book about such dark subject matter being the gay hate crimes theme of the book, I often get asked, what do you, did you, were you concerned about content that is being published in this book? People often ask you that when you have a book coming out, are you concerned? And I have to say I wasn't, but then I thought of one that I was concerned about and is one of the headlines. I just thought, gosh, uh, how will people take that, particularly people in the country? And um, I haven't had any pushback about it, but it still um, worries away at my um, sub-editorial mind for sure because it's very descriptive, this one. Yeah, I mean, the interesting idea that you raised there is the editorial sense in the ways that we frame our stories and the pictures we take of the world around us effectively. And part of this story is the way that events, gay hate crimes, as you mentioned there, have been painted over, edited out in some ways. Was it necessary for James to be a journalist, to be the one that came out and edited the truth back into history? Yes, certainly in the era in which it's set, because the most recent timeline in Tank Water is 2005, as you know. And um, writing about gay hate crimes in that era, there's really no way to position a classic detective or a police uh, person on that, those kinds of cases in that era it's not to say that they, there weren't some open investigations at that time, uh, but certainly policing has changed in, in all the years since many of these gay hate crimes uh, that we see now. They're all called historical gay hate crimes because, of course, the vast majority of them did happen in the past, as, as far back as the 1970s and perhaps earlier in some cases. Uh, but mainly peaking in New South Wales around the late 80s and 1990s, but certainly continuing on. But uh, in New South Wales right now, we're waiting for the terms of reference for a judicial inquiry into gay and transgender hate crimes between 1970 and 2010. We're waiting for those terms of reference to be announced. So uh, I saw some stuff on social media this morning, actually, um, which uh, piqued my interest again, because 
it is a waiting game to find out how the New South Wales government is going to respond to the recommendations of the initial inquiry, uh, which is all about responses to the New South Wales Police internal investigation. So, yeah, having a journalist putting pressure on local police in Tankwater is really, really apt. Having a journalist as the person who's actually there seeking the truth. And James is not just a journalist, he's also a family member. And um, it is family members of survivors and victims of gay hate crimes who very often are the ones that are putting the greatest pressure on the authorities to find out the truth. So, yes, absolutely, the answer to your question is yes, a journalist is the best. Well, yeah, I mean, the other thing that you raised there is the idea that a, a conventional detective wouldn't work for this story. And I felt that the question in this novel compared to the mysteries that I normally read was less who done it, how and why, and more why was this allowed to happen? And one of the big tensions in the novel is, of course, James's father is one of the t- town's top cops at the times of the various deaths in the story. Yes. Did James ever expect he'd get a satisfying answer to why was this allowed to happen? Yeah, that is also a really good question. I've not been asked that one before, but what you're asking, it goes right to the core of how does a really good thriller or a crime story or even a good old whodunit work? And having a journalist like James be the one seeking the truth, uh, journalists were often only just one shade away, one degree away from what you call police procedural processes. We, uh, as journalists, if you're working on the crime rounds in the suburbs or in the city or in country towns, the further away from metro areas you get classically, uh, the more you're going to be involved in um, crime reporting. Um, but there's an old standard in uh, weekly newspapers that you you go around and see the police or you give them a call and you get the police rounds. Every newspaper has a kind of a different approach or a focus to this. There are some editors that say we want our readers to know every single time there's a, a house fire, we want to know every single time there's a car accident when there's people trapped. And if you've read the shipping news or any of your listeners have, you'll remember there were very clear priorities for Coyle when he started the job of reporting on that uh, Newfoundland newspaper um, about, uh, you know, blood and gore and that sort of thing. Those were the priorities. So it's a question journalists, I uh, encourage you to ask if you're going for a job in a country newspaper or a suburban newspaper, ask what the priorities are because in police and emergency rounds, that's kind of what you'll be getting out of bed to go and report on. Well, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing there is that that relates a lot to crime and crime thriller writing and how we present the grim parts of society. Yeah. You know, I've been trying to find a way to like organize thrillers in my brain because in some ways I've been having to like relearn the genre because I've, you know, not been, I guess, the conventional reader of them. And I've been circling this idea of like, flavors of the page turner you know the page turner being the core tenet of the thriller novel and the odd thing about Tankwater, in a enjoyable way was that i felt the flavor of the page turner here was a sense of discomfort the idea that everything there was like oh gosh if people would just open up to each other if people would be honest to each other if people didn't see each other this way then the tension here would just be released so i was just turning the page just hoping like someone would say something good uh for the first time in a long while and those moments do come and they're really great when they do through the novel 
how enveloping do you think that sense of tension is for James? And how did it evolve more than he thought it did between 1985 and 2005? Discomfort is a really fantastic word to use in describing it. And you know what? I actually encountered a bit of discomfort this weekend, just gone, going to a, <laughs> going to a Christmas party mm-hmm. in the country, here in a country town. And gosh, it took me by surprise how, you know, I'm 51 years old, I'm out, i say to myself that I'm proud, but I still experience those discomforts that I've recreated for James. And, you know, here we are in 2021, James was in uh, 2005 back in his country town and then in 1985 as a kid. And in some aspects, you can still have your knees cut off a bit by these, I suppose, their community expectations um, you know, the, the scenarios that I've put James in are things like weddings, funerals, sort of like uh, family and community. Yeah, a, a strong sense of like obligations. Yeah, too. there are obligations. And so, but you, there's also gentility expected of people. And, and I think probably in the country, I can say this because I'm from here and I live in the country now, is that the expectation to be genteel, be polite is, is greater. Perhaps I'm wrong about that. I don't know. But I, I have thought about this a lot since it happened a few days ago. And I thought, wow, you know, I, there are still situations where you can't go in guns blazing. Um, the old adage of, you know, don't talk about religion or politics. There's probably a few more subjects. What I'm trying to get at is I think that for LGBTIQA plus living in country areas, perhaps there's a few more occasions where we go through discomfort. Even now, uh, it will take a while to change. And I think those are observable in, in tank water. It just took me by surprise this week that um, here, just those 15 or 16 years beyond the timing of tank water, that they're still around. And it's not a, it's not a big thing, but it doesn't take long for discomfort to turn into something nastier. And, yeah. and for a, a thriller, a crime story, that's always, the, um, that's always the need, I think, to get that page-turning quality. And boy, was it fun, I think, to actually, in, in that story, to actually um, create situations where gentility goes out the window. Yeah. <laughs> or that characters need to actually um, keep themselves nice because it does create tension. And the scene I'm thinking about in Tankwater is the wedding scene where James's parents, who are estranged, they're separated, and they are expected to dance. And they kind of, they, they engage in that process. It's on the surface all looking, wow, you know, I'm sure that, you know, um, parents observing that and children would possibly have thought, well, maybe they'll get back together. <laughs> yeah. But there's just no way that's going to happen. Mm. But no one can state that clearly. So it is very discomforting. And that's such a great term, Felix, to use for those moments. Well, yeah, there are two things that I want to touch on. The first one is just like a, a positive note to flip over that previous question, which was at the uh, Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival a couple of weeks ago, at least as we record, this episode will be coming out a bit later. Uh, someone asked a wonderful question about how that discomfort has effectively evolved in rural communities. Mm. And your answer, I thought was really beautiful at talking about how it's better to come out in rural communities now because the community knows to stand behind you at that point. Yes. What is your kind of hope for that acceptance growing in our regional communities? And what do you think is often missed by people in the city when we look at that relationship further out in the country? Oh, look, that's such 
that's such a big hopeful pot- potential for hope in that question. Yeah. And look, if you'd asked me 30 years, 40 years ago, how far I think things would go for uh, LGBTIQA plus in this country and particularly in country towns, I never would em- envisage that it had gone as far as it has in terms of equalities and freedoms and protections. So with this answer, I have to really pull out the stops because <laughs> we're looking at the future. So let's imagine 30 years from now that uh, there's no cause for um, young same-sex attracted people or uh, sexually diverse people or uh, gender non-binary people to leave unless they want to. And I think in my generation and those older than me, there was this great expectation um, that you had to silently and without much help make a really, really terrible choice. Mm. And, And it really was simple. You either had to lie about yourself in order to stay at the family table and uh, perhaps do something like get married against, you know, what you what you envisage for yourself and have children and be respectable, or you had to leave. You just had to take yourself away from that family table and go. I often feel grateful that I didn't necessarily have to make that choice myself because I uh, left the country when I was uh, just shy of 10 years old because my parents split up and I moved away to the Blue Mountains, which was a bit of a country town in those days, but right at the doorstep of the city. Yeah. So I, I felt lucky about that in a sense. So I really hope for the future that there, there's just no need to make that terrible, terrible choice anymore because those years, the bad old days, I call them, were so dangerous for mm. young and emerging LGBTIQA. And um, for many, it still is. So that's something that I, no matter how many equalities we get um, in the legal system and for um, social acceptance, we, we really need that choice to change, to be removed altogether or added to. I mean, there's just no, there's no choice in that sort of thing. It, it's pretty dreadful. And, and you know, I've uh, heard and read stories of people who had to make that choice, um, and it, it just it just rips families apart. So now in 2021, I can I could remember or, 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 or tell your listeners a few different social situations I've been in here in the country when it's very very clear that just by being visible uh, and out, that um, me and my husband are making a difference in the moment to other families who have young or emerging LGBTIQA in their, in their ranks. And um, the visibility alone is, is a huge support. So you kind of don't even have to do anything other than just be who you are at that table in a social situation. As I said earlier, on some occasions it's a little bit, it can be, it, it can be difficult because there are many, many people who are at different stages with this. Well, yeah, I, the thing I was going to raise, right, is that people are being at different stages of understanding is that the last time we spoke before the Sydney Crime Writers Festival, you essentially grilled me about my queer identity. Yes. And I was, I found it really interesting reading Questionable Deeds after that discussion because you talk about how queer folk are often asked to justify and explain who they are. And yes, yes. it was so bizarre thinking about it in that conversation because <laughs> I was like, but Michael did that to me. 
you did. You did. We're very kindly um, responded to my grilling, and, um, <laughs> and 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 I hasten to add. I hasten to add to you, for your listeners' sake. You, I did give you an out. You were. Oh no, absolutely. I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here. I just thought that it was really interesting that, like, you know, that discussion has gone from feeling so defensive to more about just expressing at least who I am. Yes. You know, I I felt like you having that conversation, you doing the grilling means that you're not as confronted by the idea of having to defend yourself. That's absolutely correct. And yes, Questionable Deeds is now, the writing of it is now seven years ago. And the 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 time period I was writing about was 2004, 2005. So it shows you how quickly things are changing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's Look, being a journalist, I suppose I just gave you a, what I'd call a classic interview and said, you know, <laughs> you're allowed to say this is all off the record, but you know, <laughs> but but you were you were very you were very very kind, very understanding because we were at a pub at the time yeah. with a, a group of crime writers, and um, yeah, it was a, a great gift that you gave me because of, of some inspiration I'd had earlier that day about another character I'm writing in the the next thing that I may well have complete in manuscript form. I was grappling with the concept of bisexuality. And I think that that really, I find out of all of the alphabet soup that we have, it's one <laughs> of one of the most misunderstood, I believe. And, and um, yes, and yes, the point we were trying to make is that people are at different stages with all of this. And, and you know, yeah, the alphabet soup is getting bigger. I, I, as I warn people, there's going to be a lot more letters of the alphabet, I think. So when you asked me earlier to project about the future, one thing I hope is that we'll eventually just get to H for human and be done with it. That would be really, (laughs) really wonderful. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Now that's bliss you've described right there. <laughs> yeah, I guess I wanted to take a dive back into the 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 grimier side of tank water and questionable deeds. You mentioned in questionable deeds uh, an obstacle course, you know, of beats older men and this sense of directionlessness that there is in early sexual experiences, or at least there definitely was for many young gay men. In Tankwater, that manifests as the toilets near the Kippen Bridge, the young James's mm. obsession with Tony. Why was it important for you to show that even though there is a kind of dirty sense to this, that it's still part of the experience? You know, why was it important not to sanitize that? Oh gosh, the, such big questions. These are great. <laughs> these are great. These are great. I have to preface all my answers to this particular issue with with. A real, a genuine, non-judgmental approach that I take to people's pathway to consensual intimacy, um, and and beat culture is something which I think it's joked about a lot, but not actually either analysed or written about or portrayed in a way that people can understand or that's somehow accessible for all audiences to see or read or, or understand. And um, people often say to me, oh, look, do you think now we have marriage equality? Will we have less beats? And the, I don't know. I'm not a font of all knowledge about the, about the issue. Um, but I do feel that it would have been disingenuous as a, you know, middle-aged gay Australian male to, who was privileged enough to get a book deal for Tankwater to actually whitewash all of that stuff out. And people describe it differently. It's interesting. They use different words. And the one that's quite often used is sordid. Mm. It's it's probably very overblown for people to use that particular word, that sort of, it's pejorative, it's negative. It's really um, 
I think one of the best descriptions I ever heard of it was at the Australian Homosexual Histories Conference in 2016 at La Trobe University, where a writer whose name I'm very sorry that I've forgotten, but he spoke about the uh, victimless crimes, which I think a lot of gay men, certainly, um, or bisexual men, or other cisgender men, cisgender men who perhaps fall under the term that we call MSM, men who have sex with men. So for for centuries, these men were uh, prone to arrest, violence, hanging, other forms of corporal punishment and capital punishment, simply for seeking intimacy, consensual intimacy with other men. And the behaviour got camouflaged over the years, and I'm talking way back, like under Henry VIII when the Buggery Act was created, these men got camouflaged under a whole range of terms like sodomy and all of the different pejorative terms that we have for homosexuality or bisexuality or alternate sexuality for cisgender men. And um, you can see I'm already getting lost in the alphabet here. <laughs> but, but I just want to remind people of my non-judgmental view of this yeah. um, because that's how I see it. If, if, if men were prone to being arrested or hauled in front of magistrates for this behaviour, I agree with the Latrobe writer, uh, conference writer, who actually referred to these as victimless crimes as long as they're consensual. The jokes around beat culture are uh, fairly common. The laugh that people have, in a sense, about seeing cars parked outside beats where there are um, children's seats and chairs and harnesses in the back seat. So obviously whoever's driven that car there is likely to be a married father. And, um, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a hard joke. But here here we are again at examples of people who are at different stages with these things being the LGBTIQA journey, there's still a long, long way to go. But do you know what? At the end of all of this this process, there may still be men who want to have consensual intimacy anonymously or, you know, quickly or whatever they're seeking, whatever um, intimacy they're seeking. Who who knows? But, But my hope is that the judgment about that goes because it, the judgment about it presupposes there's shame involved and shame presupposes that there's something bad going on. And, um, you know, I, I also agree that we have to have certain levels of public decency, you know, in a, in a democratic society. And very often it's those, those decency laws that are being breached. But, but again, I, I just come back to the non-judgmental approach to attitudes about that. So when I, when I, uh, I never had a question with tank water about would I write those scenes in. Never had a question. Yeah. They they had to be there, uh, but I certainly pondered and took some very very long walks about including that content in questionable deeds because questionable deeds is a memoir. This is my life that I'm talking about and the lives of others. Uh, but I uh, needed to write a very truthful account of of some really bad deeds yeah. that were going on at, at, at every level uh, in the family um, that I was part of through my de facto relationship with my late partner, Jono, but also not just the family, but also the, um, the legal system, the kind of community structures that govern things from um, rental agreements to funeral arrangements. 
So I could have written with Questionable Deeds a real misery memoir Mm. and played the violin for myself, but I thought, no, hang on. As a grieving spouse from a um, solid de facto relationship that was monogamous, I ended up coming face-to-face with my demons and I was part of beat culture. I was going to beat seeking out that consensual intimacy. And um, I had been aware of it before those, before that terrible year and a half or two years of grief. Um, it, I, it really wasn't for me. Um, again, I don't, re- I don't recall judging it in a sense, I, but it, it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. I, I just felt differently to that. I was seeking something else in my relationship. But there I was yeah. uh, afterwards. And, and I thought, well, I've got a choice here. I can either paint myself as some kind of saint <laughs> amongst sinners, but that's, I think that's a very dangerous thing when you're writing nonfiction. I think that's where the idea of the misery memoir comes from. And so I, I actually, as you know, I, I wrote about that culture in Questionable Deeds as a, as a means of... Um, I suppose equalising the playing field because I had, in hindsight, I wrote Questionable Deeds about 10 years after the fact. In hindsight, I had questions for myself yeah. on those issues and so I wanted to explore those as well. And, um, you know, it creates dialogue. It has over the years, uh, positive and negative, um, and it's the same with tank water. Most kinds of responses I get to the sordid beat culture in my writing is that people can't quite believe that it's going on. Like, is it really happening? In yeah, I mean, town? I'll confess, I didn't know a thing about it until I read either of these books. Like, I, I had to research it to even yeah. understand entirely what was going on. And I guess the interesting thing that you've raised there in your last point is that both Questionable Deeds and Tank Water deal with returning to past trauma. You know, Questionable Deeds has the aura of a story that just needed to be gotten out of your head. There's this, like, very high resolution temporally uh you know that sense of an adrenaline filled situation that you remember down to the microsecond and so much of james's story is the same where he remembers so vividly the experiences that he had coming back to kippen when he was younger because of just how little he understood them for james coming back into the situation would coming back sooner have been better for him do you think or was it you know only circumstance that could have forced him there wow yes i can only really answer that from my own experience i suppose and between the years when i was a teenager and the time when i was james's age in tank water so the 20 same 20 year interval i went through some very discomforting family um, occasions like weddings, funerals, birthday parties, etc. And I, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't even out in the city. So yeah. James was certain, <laughs> certainly a bit more advanced than me. I came out when I was around 28, 29 years old. And um, yes, it was ridiculous when I think about it because I, um, you know, I had also been to drama school, which is, yep. you know, like the most ridiculous place to be closeted. It's mm-hmm. hilarious when I think about it. But I think part of that was because I was from a family that had been through a lot of death, divorce and disaster. Yeah. And coming out felt like I was just going to be delivering more bad news to people who had had enough of it. And it's a ridiculous thing. Mm. Um, I, I don't want any listeners to feel that coming out is going to be bad news. It's, it can be very confronting and people need to go through a transition, but I really wish 
that I had in those years between 15 and 35 had a, a, I just wish someone had asked me. It's amazing when you're a kid, I think a lot of teenagers have the same experience. Our parents ask us everything. Are you on drugs? Are you (laughs) vandalizing things? What are you doing? Are you getting up? But no one really, well, very few that I've ever heard of parents have had, or not just parents, but family members or community members have the courage to actually not ask directly if a child is uh, anything but straight, um, but to actually allow for that answer. You know, I was, I think I was 28 years old and a neighbour down the road from a house that I just moved into in the Blue Mountains, um, my, one of my dogs escaped one day, was not there when I got home from work and I got a call from this neighbour who I had not met. Yeah. I went down to get my dog and this very kind neighbour just asked me, so if you've got a partner, do you have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend? And that inclusion, that ability for me to be able to just give the answer that is, is correct yeah. without any shame was so, so very powerful for me. And that was the first time when I was 28. So why not 18? You know, it says a lot about how our societies are really dysfunctional in, in that regard. A little bit of inclusion, just a small amount of inclusion socially is possible. So at those birthday parties, in those weddings and funerals in the country, uh, but no, I, I know I've portrayed the townspeople in Tank Water as very similar. They just were not capable prior to 2005 of doing that. So perhaps this is answering your question a bit earlier, a bit better, that I think I see more inclusion now. It's possible to say, do you have someone special in your life without actually defining what gender they're going to be? Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah, I guess the kind of last topic that I wanted to to wrangle with in this book is the sense of adventure that goes on through it. Because obviously, given the subject matter that we've been speaking about, the book is heavy. You know, it, it, it can be uncomfortable. It can deal with themes that aren't easy to think about. But it's still a coming-of-age story. And intrinsic to that is finding yourself. And accompanying that is the journeys that you go on to get there. How did you feel about putting in these small facets of joy the whole way through the story, be it, you know, just experiences going out on the farm and doing work uh, between James and Tony when he first gets back into town, be it more broad experiences dealing with the relationship between Dylan and James in 2005? And uh, I guess the weirdest one that I wanted to ask you about is, for example, we see James, you know, text himself notes in 2005. And the preface question, I guess, I have for that is, was he a BlackBerry user or was he, like, (laughs) frantically mashing the number keys to get these notes in in time after being chased into Tony's apartment? Oh, you know what? On that issue, I actually had help from the book formatter Zena Shapter, who's a fantastic book formatter and does a lot of Midnight Suns work uh, because I I had previously James um, using a notebook, which a lot of journalists still do. I still do. Yeah. When I need when I need to. I was about to pick up mine to show it to you, the camera, but it's sitting on uh, the other side the, of the room. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They still make them. They still make journalists um notebooks. So I couldn't have that in that moment. And I and and I I just I suppose I've just honest with Zena. I said, I can't quite work out how to do this. And she said, Remember when we, when before we had these amazing smartphones, you could actually send a text to yourself. And I thought, oh, of course, of course, I had done that on many occasions. And so also in 2005, we couldn't have smartphones. They weren't out yet. We had to have flip phones, which 
you know, was state of the art 2004 um, <laughs> through to I think about 2006. So, yeah, look, yeah, that was really wonderful support from someone who remembered the same uh, technology of the day and that's priceless when you're working with a team put, that's putting, who's putting t- a book together. But your question also was about the lighter moments yeah. in the story. And to be honest, I was really conscious of putting those in. I was asked recently about at the Terra Australis um, panel session of LGBTQ authors um, about whether I had been aware of any kind of uh, gay heroes or characters when I was young. And, and uh, we got that question a little ahead of time. So we had preparation time and I really thought, well, gosh, actually, no, I didn't. Yeah. But what I did have were cartoon characters and one of the most memorable for me was, of course, was Snagglepuss, mm-hmm. who was outed years ago as being a wonderful gay panther or whatever creature he is. I remembered how those kind of characters, and they were more than just Snagglepuss, they gave me a kind of a shtick, which I, I evolved into a bit of a protection mechanism, particularly at school. Yeah. Because um, even though I, I wasn't going to be able to um, defend myself physically, or have any knowledge about doing that, I certainly developed very on an ability to do that verbally. And I did that unwittingly with the humour of characters like Snagglepuss. Mm -hmm. And uh, they kind of, yeah, I think that the lighter moments in Tank Water are are an an overhang of that, a kind of a sardonic way of that James steps back and looks at situations and is just like, for God's sake, (laughs) that's quite funny. Like the way that the... The, the young receptionist at the motel is really not listening to him when he's checking out and he just, you know, makes that classic joke, it was a terrible stay, thank you very much, and yep. she doesn't hear him at all. Um, and I, I really do think that in with dark subject matter, the reader is owed some lightness. You know, it, it kind of, it's like, you know, imagine crawling through a dark tunnel, suddenly there's a shaft of light way up ahead and in it might not be the end of the tunnel, but it's certainly a chink in the cave and it's encouragement to keep going. It's as important, those moments, as a, as a writer, I think those moments are just as important as the moments of tension and drama to sort of just loosen up a little bit. And, um, yeah, I think some of them came naturally. Some of them I remember thinking, gosh, this, this is actually a bit dark. Let's just find some lightness um, in there. And... Um, as writers, we've got so many tools to use, but at that stage, it's really what's in the room, what's in the tunnel at that point. And for James with his mobile phone and his notebook, um, that was that was a, um, a great tool, I think, to, again, like the headlines that he dreams up, it, it, it's a shorthand way of sum- summarising where we're at. And, um, yeah, that was very, very helpful. I think that I took a leaf out of Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies because yeah. she uses some fantastic devices in that book to do something very, very similar. It's a wonderful shorthand. And I think readers these days expect a little bit of that from authors. And I, I don't mind. I think as a journalist, I've, we, we need to do that as well, like subheadings in the, in the article. You know, these days you get all, I call them bells and whistles. You get like asked a poll halfway through an article or you get to look at a map or you, you know, mm. it's a little little bit like that. I think that I, I enjoyed creating Tank Water being just a little bit like a really, really long form article in that sense. 
Yeah, I guess the last thing touching on that same note, and I should be clear if you're listening at home and haven't read the book, this is the closest to spoilers I'm going to allow us to get, so be warned. (laughs) But on that sense of levity, I felt that for all of the things that happened in the story, a lot of characters got off pretty easy in the end, and in a way that was, like, comforting. Characters who are maybe forgiven more than they should, but lean into that forgiveness to try and make themselves better. Why did you allow that to happen? You know, why not be vengeful? Yeah, yeah, really great question. Well, the epilogue of Tank Water uh, did not exist until maybe two months before the final version of the book went to print. And Anna Solding, she asked me, well, would you consider writing one? Um, The team there felt that it was needed. Without the epilogue, the ending uh, would have been a highly dramatic, almost filmic yeah. moment uh, on a boat and um, with explosions. Mm-hmm. So there we go. These are, we're getting into spoiler territory, but I think if people are listening now after three quarters of an hour, they deserve a few <laughs> crumbs. Um, and, yes, so I, I thought, wow, an epilogue to this story. Gosh, what can I deliver? And the thing that preyed on me the most was the fact that this is 2005. Although I could have chosen any time period, I suppose, for, for an epilogue, but I thought, okay, what happens the very next day? Let's just look at a very short period, say from, you know, 10 in the morning the next day till dusk, sunset, and see what happens. And it was the most natural thing in the world. It, uh, I didn't feel it was difficult to write. Uh, and we went through a few versions of it because the earlier version of the epilogue, I think actually provided too much hope. There was too much resolution and remembering it's 2005. So let's, let's look at um, a real life suspected gay hate crime with the case of Scott Johnson, who died at Manly in 1988. From his death, 1988, until 2005, his death was considered a suicide. It wasn't until 2012 that the first judicial processes to have a look again at that particular death. So I couldn't provide any kind of uh, concrete police response to Tony Brand's death, my fictional uh, character in Tankwater. All I could give was hope. But beyond that, I thought I, what I want to do is to add as much three-dimensionality to Tony as I possibly could because I really do think that the, the Scott Johnsons, the Raymond Keems, all of the men whose face we see, Ross Warren, uh, we see their faces regularly. They'll be, their faces will be in the headlines again today with this, this drilling down on what are the terms of reference for the judicial inquiry into their deaths. Yeah. They become ciphers in a, in a sense. They become very one-dimensional and their, their photographs are of them many, many years ago in their prime. We as readers, as, as media consumers, don't hear much about them. We don't know much about them apart from a few scant details. So I, had an, I knew with that epilogue I had an opportunity to provide hope but also just to finally flesh out the loss of Tony, not just as a cipher, not just as a, a one-dimensional man, but as someone who was very loved, had hopes, dreams, ambitions, but had that all very cruelly taken away from him, but also from the people 
that survived his death, his family. Yeah. I've had quite a few responses about this idea of perhaps giving too much hope. But um, yeah, I, I do get that. But I also do understand from the perspective of having written it, how my first response was to pilot with hope. Yeah. And um, there's nothing actually in the epilogue which really gives anything more to those characters than could possibly given under under the reality of 2005 and what that meant for families about to face a very, very long wait for justice. So ironically, if I'd made the epilogue in 2021, they would still be waiting for justice. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, God, that's bleak. So give them a little bit of hope. Give them a little bit of that restorative hope, that, that, that idea that, you know, it, it wasn't all so, so dreadfully wrong and bad because I imagine for those families that it's painful. Many people have died waiting for answers. I've spoken to some journalistically over the years and read accounts of their ongoing grief and trauma and re-traumatising by the constant sort of retelling of these stories. So I, I did feel a bit of pressure there to, you know, nail it, but I just didn't want it to be so very bleak uh, as it possibly could have been. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a great note to kind of leave off today's discussion on because I definitely get that sense that you imbued this book with a sense of joy and hope that really a lot of the actions in it kind of didn't deserve if they were happening in the real world. And it's that envelopment of fiction that allows us to grapple with the issues while not just burdening ourselves entirely with them. And that, I think, is the core balance that you nailed in this book. Oh, thank you. Well, yes, fiction gives us a chance to talk about these incidents uh, without breaching subjudice rules or privacy, which are both very important. Yeah processes judicially and also just personally for people who who have experienced these losses. So I I think that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was to to have this um, relatively safe way to talk about these issues. And and if I've done that for even one person, I'm very, very happy. Well, there you go. I think you can count yourself happy then, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on Final Draft. It has been a heavy conversation, but one I'm glad we've had and a book that I'm very glad that I got the chance to read. I super appreciate you taking the time out of your week to sit down and speak with us. Uh, It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Felix, and to 2SER. You're most welcome. Michael Burgess' Tankwater is out with Midnight Sun Publishing, as well as his self-published memoir, Questionable Deeds, which has been reprinted alongside this. And I would highly recommend checking the both of them out. We'll have links up on Final Draft's podcast, of course. Andrew, thank you so much for having me here on Final Draft. It's been a pleasure. And uh, back to you. That is it for this great conversation between Michael Burge and Felix Shannon. Michael's new novel is Tankwater, and uh, I want to also say a huge thank you uh, to Michael as all, and also to Felix Shannon. Felix is the host of Death of the Reader, which you can catch on 2SER every Sunday night. It's also got a podcast. Go check out Death of the Reader wherever you get your podcasts. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people, and today also on the lands of the Gadigal people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. I'd also note that Felix did most of the production on today's show. <laughs> Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser Subscribe in your podcast app. It means there will be a new Great Conversation every week. 
sometimes two. There's always bonuses coming out. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, as always, happy reading.